how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 461, where I spoke to the director and editor of the new film On Fire. On Fire follows a family who lives in a trailer home in the woods and are suddenly confronted by a wildfire. Survival becomes their main objective. In this interview, director Nick Lyon and editor Don Money talk about the making of their new film. We go into the weeds about post-production, the importance of a good director-editor relationship, creating a shorthand with key team members, why speed is so crucial in independent films, and much more. Here's my conversation with Nick and Don. You know, when I was a little kid, funny enough, I was growing up in a very small town in Ohio called Mansfield, and that's where the Shawshank Redemption was shot when I was a kid. And I just thought it was so cool, you know, that like a movie was in my hometown. Um, and thinking back on it, that's where my first sort of love of that idea and also the idea that it could be a, a career you could have and not just something that you think about and almost feels like a fantasy land. And so um, when I ended up going to college uh, in a, at the University of Toledo, there was a local talent agency there that um, I was doing an open call and I randomly went and met this woman named Wendy Davis. The, the place was called Starbound Talent and they had helped launch the careers of Katie Holmes and Adrian Palicki and Allison Stoner and some other people who had come through Ohio. Um, and I started, you know, doing some acting and modeling and I really liked it and they helped get me out of Ohio. And then I went to New York city, spent a couple years in an acting conservatory and thought being an actor was what I was going to do. Uh, never, never was able to crack that code very well to make that a consistent living. So then, uh, I met my wife, Emmy Ryland, when we were doing a play off Broadway, um, and then when we started to have kids and by that time we had left New York and come to Los Angeles, I needed something with a little more stability. And so I had been an actor for over 10 years and I had a really good idea on storytelling and how to tell stories and character arcs and character developments and act structures and all of that kind of stuff. So then I had already started editing my own demo reels and, you know, reels for friends. I had a production company in New York and we had made one movie. And so I was like, I think I think I like this element of it. And so I went back to school and learned Avid. I had already known Premiere and Final Cut. And because I had been a storyteller for over a decade in my acting work, I was able to kind of hit the ground running. Um, and funny enough, one of the I had started out in short films and doing friends projects, no money you know, just kind of cutting my teeth on it. And, you know, the first feature I ever did where I didn't make a lot of money, but I got paid real money to do uh, was actually a movie called Hercules Reborn, which was Nick's movie. So actually what was my first movie feature film as an editor turned out to be Nick's movie. And that's how we met. I was born in Idaho. I was born in like a little small town. Never thought, you know, parents were farmers all from Idaho. Never thought about making film but then i you know started getting into photography in high school graphic design and then right after high school started to get into more like performance art and stuff like that you know and writing and um and painting 
and I was, uh, you know, I got this job as a, a mannequin restoration. I, I was restoring mannequins for about a year and a half while I was going to school in Portland. And it was kind of creepy because it was like a, uh, a warehouse downtown Portland with about 3000 square feet filled with mannequins. And at oh. the front of it, I, I had a painting, a painting studio as well. And I actually lived there. So it was like quite unique um, situation. And then uh, I, you know, I, I basically at that time I was going to Portland state and I, I, I saw a form said study in Germany and I filled out a form, but slipped it under the door at night, funny enough. And then I get a call back two months later. Oh, you're going to Germany. So I went over to Germany to learn the language. And in that time, I was like, huh, what am I going to do? I, I kind of like want to do everything. And um, and then I got a girlfriend who made me stay there an extra year, you know, um, to study. And in that time, the Film Academy in Ludwigsburg opened up. Um, which is like now one of the top, it's basically at the top, one of the top film schools in Germany. And so I was like, wow, I, I actually had decided I want to do film because it's the only thing that combines everything I like to do. Um, and so I applied for it. And then I was like one of 40 people to get in that year. And, um, and then I ended up studying film there, you know, just started more in an art basis, just, didn't understand the commerce of it and started making music videos while I was studying. I was working as a doorman at a club to, you know, nights until like five in the morning and then going to school at eight in the morning. So, and uh, rubbing elbows with a lot of music people and doing music videos started to go pretty good, you know, and shooting short films and, um, and yeah. And then I, graduated that and um i had a film called hilda humphrey uh that had won a bunch of festivals um and i ended up meeting you know some producers uh and i got hired to direct i love you baby which um was a german language feature film for warner brothers and it starred maximilian shell um along with a bunch of other german actors uh, Mark Keller and uh, people you wouldn't know necessarily, but it, it was, it was a pretty cool experience. You know, we shot it in Mallorca, uh, Spain and in, and in Cologne. Um, and so, and that was like the late nineties, like 2000 when there was tons of money flying around, like they were just blowing money on everything. So like, you know, like our premiere ended up being, we rented two airplanes and flew the everybody that was going to the premiere to Mallorca from Germany. Wow. And you know, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. It was a very, and so then I just decided, you know what, I got to, I, things were going really well. And I was like, Oh, I gotta, I, gotta, I can't be, I'm getting depressed being in Germany the whole, the, for nine years. I couldn't. And I was like, I wanted to come back to America. And then I came back basically started over, you know, you build a lot of connections in a network and, and, in a place and things are going well, but then you come here and it's like, you don't know anybody. Um, so I, I basically did the film, I, you know, this film punk love in Portland and, and that was part of the rebuilding process and then did a film called Grendel for sci-fi and then got species, the awakening, uh, for MGM. And, um, then I've just done different projects since then. I tend to like to do a lot of genre and, 
Um, you know, I have kids just like Don does. So, you know, we can't be overly so neither of us have trust funds and neither of us can afford not to work. So we kind of have to do things that we, um, you know, like need to work, you know, yeah, so some, true. some, some jobs that are just work, you know, it's like, it's not necessarily, you know, your genre, like even like Christmas movies or something is like, once you become a craftsman, you end up having the ability to, to, to jump between genres and to tell a story. And that's really what it's about. It doesn't matter which, some of them are harder than others, but, (laughs) you know, but I do do a lot of action, a lot of crazy, you know, like action, sci-fi, thriller, uh, and varying in budgets, you know. You see a comparison of even like, I think a, christmas movies and like indie films speed is a big thing like knowing being able to make decisions quickly do you see some parallels between all of your work as different as some of it may be well honestly yeah no i when i first started the first film it was like 28 days and that was on film and that was like you know in the days of slow moving you know we didn't move as fast back then and and then i did Grendel and that was already that was like a 14 day shoot and then species was like a 26 day shoot 26 or 28 and then you get into the other stuff it starts to go down and down and down and down now now it's like budgets haven't shrunk like they haven't really shrunk but everything's gotten more expensive and they the budgets also haven't gone up so now they go okay well you have to do it in less time so now okay yeah we have 12 days and then they go okay well what do you need 12 days for 11 days is too much here's nine days and get the hell out of here you know that type of thing yeah so it just keeps going down and and you have to learn to adapt and be really fast i've had the i've been fortunate in in you know being able to have projects with longer longer shooting days i think the most i've had is 43 um and that was on a big project in Germany, in German language. Um, but I've done, you know, stuff in nine, ten days, you know. Mm-hmm. Or Z Nation was like six days. But that's like only for an episode. That's pretty standard for TV. But you have to know how to move fast. And the same thing goes with the edit. It's like mm-hmm. you have to, like Don, when I call Don to edit, it's like he's editing in real time. So if there's a shooting day. So it's kind of nice because you come back after you're done shooting and there's almost already a, an assembly or a rough cut that's done and you can watch it because it's basically one day of shooting equals one day of assembly. And you end up having a film by the end of it, maybe a week after, you know, because there's a delay in getting all the de- dailies processed. And um, Don's really good about moving very fast. In fact, a lot of new editors are, I, I don't know how they like, kind of interesting to like they just move fast people everybody moves fast now it's it's kind of nuts yeah the the speed at which we move sometimes used to be scary to me um but then like you know the the film that nick and i first worked on was on a hyper schedule and and what it ends up teaching you especially if you really know how to tell a story is it is it helps teach you to make good decisions quickly you don't have a lot of time always to hem and haw around about this and that and the other. We get on projects where we get a little more time and that's nice. Um, but from an editorial perspective, what I've learned uh, from a lot of the producers that I work with is if they're presented with two options and 
they're both good storytellers. Maybe one of them is a slightly better storyteller, but the other one is drastically faster. They'll end up going with the drastically faster one Mm -hmm. just because, you know, as the story progresses through all the different cuts, it's, it, it no longer becomes just the editor's cut. They know after the editor cut comes the director cut, then comes the producer cut. And then sometimes comes the network cut or the studio cut. And they're like, so even if the editor cut is not perfectly told or is not, you know, perfect as is, uh, there's going to be the, all these other steps where we're going to get it perfect. It matters more to us at how quickly these cuts come together than how good they are initially. And my background as an actor, I think also helps me with the speed because I'm brutal when it comes to, to going through the footage. If I don't believe it, or if it, you know, I'm just, I rifle through the footage. And, and one thing Nick has mentioned to me over the years that is quite nice is, you know, a lot of times when I give him something, even though that's the first time he's seeing it, it's probably my third, fourth or fifth time through something. And it really does feel like he gets to just watch the scene or watch a chunk of the movie, not in like an old, because assemblies used to be old and crude, right? And you would just throw it together and there'd be mismatched edits and there'd be double dialogue. And you're just trying to get what was shot into the timeline to see if you have anything. I don't work that way. The way I cut and the way I present something is like, hey, this is a version or our first version of how this scene would go, but it's got sound effects in it. It's got some music in it. It's got points that are like, I've thought about all these things. So you should be able to just sit back and really process what you have. And to Nick's point on some of these schedules, they'll start me a day behind him. So he'll shoot day one. And then my day one is the next day when he's shooting day two, by the time I'm done with my first day of work, uh, he has everything that he can see from his first day at the end of his second day. And we just try to keep up with that kind of a timeline that by the end of the shoot, I have maybe two or three days of cutting left to do on things as it spreads out a little bit and then like a week to finesse it. And then we get right into the director cut. Some director cuts are only a week long on some of these schedules. So you don't have a lot of time to, to have things be super rough and get it into shape. You kind of already have to have it in shape before you start. Yeah. And I, I like, I get like, if I get a rough cut, if it's too, like when I go into the edit, I mean, it's okay for the assembly, but then it's like, it turns into the editor's cut. And what people I, I like to do is I'm personally, I, I like to empower people with their job. I don't want to be the button pusher that stands behind you and tells you, Oh, now put this right here and there. It drives me nuts. Micromanagement. I used to be a lot more micromanagey, like when I, a long time ago, but I realized it doesn't, I, I, when I'm writing, I don't want somebody, if I'm writing, I don't want somebody over my shoulder telling me what words to put where. You can't focus. And so I basically tell an editor, give me, you know, I'll do a thing, like give me your first 10 to 20 minutes, make it your film, tell me the best feature that you can possibly cut. Don't come back to me if it's not finished. And if they come back to me and it's not finished, then I just will send it back and say, no, you, you know, this has still got errors in it, you know. And then by working in those little 10 minute to 20 minute increments, after you've done two or three, then both part, both sides start to, to recognize the pattern of how I like to cut and of the film and the pace of the film. And you kind of get it, you know, so it, it, it goes pretty. And then after that, it kind of becomes a little bit more automatic. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I know each other so well uh, on on fire um, that is in theaters now is our I think it's our fifth, fourth or fifth film together. I know how he shoots. He knows how I cut. 
you know, it, yeah. we have a shorthand that makes us have the ability to speed through things. Or we might be like, oh, remember how we handled X, Y, Z in this other movie we did? We're going to do something similar to that on this part, but we're going to change mm -hmm. it up and do it differently. And I can look at his footage and I can rifle through his footage much the same way I can rifle through my actor's footage because I'm like, I know Nick. I know what this shot is for. I know what he's thinking about here. I know why he shot what he shot. And the great thing about Nick in sort of his coming up through the film world and how he works is even though he's given some of these shorter schedules, he, he, he gets probably the most footage of any director I work with in a short amount of time as I've ever seen. So even though the schedules are tighter and shorter as an editor, you still have plenty to work with when you get, when you work on next movies, cause he shoots a lot of stuff in a very short amount well, of time. I, I, I shoot like setups and then I'll, I'll punt I'll, instead of doing a bunch of takes with the same, set up I'll, I'll move the camera in closer or i'll punch in or zoom in so i will you know just try to get more angles because there's one thing that we know that if, if you're working with no time if you have enough coverage you can pretty much cut around any problem and that's where i think don's saying like i do a lot of coverage <laughs> yeah not a lot of takes per I don't like sit there and do 10 takes of something until I, I do like a lot. I do. I always start. I do my wide shots first because that's my blocking and that gets the actors warmed up and then I'll move in. Mm -hmm. And then, and then for me working with Nick for so long, I know how he shoots. So, you know, and I'm looking through the scripty notes and I'm stuff and I'm like, gosh, I was like, they didn't do a close-up take on this. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, oh no. I was like, let me let me go to the medium shot or let me go to the two shot. And I bet you at the end of one of these takes, without calling cut, because at the same time when you're moving really fast, you call cut and go to a new setup. Like you you eat up time in between the resets and the retakes and setting up, you know, whatever it is. And I was like, I bet you if I go to the two shot or I go to the medium shot and I go to the end of this, I bet you the close-up I'm looking for is at the end of this take. And so. Sure. It took me a while to learn Nick's language in that way. Um, but once I learned it, now every movie moving forward, I'm like, I know how to look through his footage because I know where things are. And the other crazy thing is a lot of the shoots, I mean, a lot of them are now without script continuity. So there isn't like mm -hmm. notes. I mean, there's on the lower, lower, lower budget, on the lower budget ones, funny enough, I've had like one company that, will not hire a script continuity which drives me nuts it drives the actors nuts but somehow you manage um on the good production well on most of them we do have a script continuity though and they can put notes in there too so that if there's you know just running like three or four takes in one in one sitting is what don's even saying and if i have a zoom lens then it's great so i could be like okay punch into the close-up and get his close-up now pan over and get that close-up yeah. So it might be a whole series of close-ups of the same scene, just running the scene again and again and again and not even cutting it and just getting, getting, and then moving to the next actor and let them do it. And so you get everybody's coverage, which is, and that's what Don's talking about. Yeah. Too. And in a way that you do it though, where you're not losing five to 10 minutes from saying cut in between all of yeah. them. Cause if you, then you yeah. end up doing six takes. If it takes you five minutes between takes, that's a half hour. You just want. Yeah. You, you, sometimes you get afraid to yell cut because it's like all of a sudden the chaos breaks out again, you know, cause like directing is kind of like conducting chaos into a precise final picture.
And so all of a sudden it's like everybody wants to do their job well, but you do cut. Then all of a sudden, like makeup's in there, they're doing touch-ups, and then wardrobe's like, wait, you know what? This button isn't right, or this wrinkle here, I need to steam the shirt. And then all of a sudden, yeah, think you know, and then the actor needs to go to the bathroom, and then and it's like, okay, I don't really have time to wait 15 minutes just because I yelled cut. So it needs to keep moving. And and so sometimes it's just a lot more efficient just to keep and the momentum keeps mm -hmm. going you know like don, what, like uh don when do you first come in do you come in are you involved in pre-production at all are you reading the screenplay for those not familiar with what editor does before or do you come after it's already been shot yeah so usually what happens with me is i'll get a call from nick or a producer i've worked with or whatever or it could be a referral and i'll and i'll get sent the script ahead of time and i'll read the script um, and then sometimes I have meetings with the directors, um, sometimes even before I'm hired to decide if they want to hire me. Other times, if I'm already hired, uh, we'll start to have a chat about the script and about what they're thinking of, you know, stylistically and thematically and all those kinds of things. You know, we might share uh, other movies that we love within the genre that might be inspirations for certain things, or we might share music cues and soundtracks and you know, sometimes the director will be like, hey, I'm thinking of shooting this scene like this. And, you know, so with everybody that I work with these days, I actually come in usually during pre-production. Um, also, usually the editor kind of spearheads some of the meetings initially with with the post-production team and the editorial team to figure out the workflow of like, you know, what cameras they've decided on what camera they're shooting on. OK, what's the raw footage going to be? How, how long are the transcodes going to take? How long is the sync going to take? Here's how I like my project files set up and all that kind of stuff. So um, most of the time on most projects, uh, it doesn't have to be a lot of time before the shoot. It could be the week before. Um, but I definitely come in ahead of time to discuss a few different things, some technical and workflow and some creative and stuff with the directors. And then like with Nick, we've known each other so long and you know we're friends more than we're coworkers he might send me a script he's writing that's like just saying, Hey, this is something I hope to make in the next year or the next two years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I've read an early version even well, you know, before, before it starts. So, and with some of the other editors, you know, Nick has worked with over the years, I don't know if it's always the same, but very, I can't think of a single time really where I've come on board after the fact, unless it's a scenario where there already was an editor and it didn't go well. And then I'm I'm being hired to come in, or and, even and, it's just like it, even if it isn't going, it might go well perfectly. But you, it often happens that you get to a producer's cut, and the producers just want to have it, you know, a different set of eyes. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the first editor did it. You know, mainly the first editor usually has done all the heavy lifting, and the second editor comes in and does a couple tweaks here and there. But it's stuff that. It's kind of like writing, rewriting is the hardest part of writing because you have to do stuff that you don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. So you've already done what you know how to do. And now rewrite it, you have to like go to places that you don't know, you're not seeing it. So bringing in a fresh perspective is, is I, I find it really valuable actually, because somebody else might see it a little bit different. And that's something that maybe I didn't see, you know? Yeah, on, on Nick's first movie that, that I that I met him on, there was another editor who was working on the project. They shot, Nick, where'd you shoot that? Morocco, I believe. Yeah. That was shot in Morocco. Um, and it was being made by, by, by this company that a friend of mine from my edit, where I went to school, 
was working at that company and she had put my resume into the post-production supervisor. And so they called me because they were a little bit behind schedule. And so they initially called me to come in to just do some assembly edits. And so I came in and I started to do some assemblies. Um, and then it turned out that some of my assemblies, even at the first assembly, were in better shapes than some of the other scenes that had already been cut were. So then they kept me on. And then by the time we were done, it ended up being like a co-editor kind of a deal. Um, and yeah, so that, well, that one is an instance that I came in later, um, but then got up to speed really fast. But Yeah, but you kind of had to take over the cut because it was kind of a tough job for somebody that didn't have a lot of experience. And so that was one where... There's, yeah, and that was, that was up, not an easy movie. You had so editing. much going know, on with a lot of the battle action. scenes and it was in it, the really visual good. effects. It was it was a tough movie. Yeah, yeah. I did an interview a couple months ago with uh, Herbert James Winterstern. He's the writer director of a film called Supercell about tornadoes and chasing storms. Mm -hmm. It was a combination of him actually going in the field and shooting tornadoes and adding some of those. Did, did the origin of this film start with footage of wildfires or where did this kind of come from? No, it started with me like on a camping trip with my kids. And I was like, it was all, you know, all over the news. It's like in 2017 around there. And there's always fires. And I was like, going, man, what would I do if there was a fire? because it's like we're going I, there's really only one road out of here so what do we do do we run do we climb over the mountain uh, you know and it's at night it was just kind of a horrifying concept and and then I was like okay I think it'd be cool to do a film because I was doing disaster movies at the time too like a lot of disasters that were and so I was like, okay, you know, maybe I could do a family that's stuck. And then I wrote a treatment for a boy and his father um, that were, you know, trying to escape a forest fire. And then it sat there for many years. Um, I, I, I was like, I had an opportunity to pitch for this film um, because there was another production that was a total mess that they were working on. And it was, I was like, look, at this point, just cut your losses. They were down like three or $400,000 and they hadn't shot anything. I'm like, why don't you just, um, and I wrote a treatment really quick. <laughs> I, I adapted this one. Cause I was like, no, I don't want to have kids in it and a dog, you know, it's like, that's going to be really hard. But I wrote a treatment and I pitched it to him and I said, we love it. You know? And then this was like in August. And I was like, well, I can get you the script in two weeks. And, and then I called Ron Peer, who is a co-writer and uh, he, uh, <laughs> he, he, he pounded out a first draft, like with, you know, and then we kept bouncing back and forth after that. I would, I rewrote his and then he rewrote mine. And then, um, and that's how it started with this one. It wasn't like, and, and, you know, the, the thing is to consider, too, is like, how do you do this? You know, and me and Don, for example, we both know we've done so much with visual effects mm -hmm. on a low budget. I mean, mm -hmm. the visual effect combination of practical effect with, low, with you know, like wind, uh, you know, having Smoke, like Ritter fog. fans, having having exactly that, like tornadoes or having big storms or earthquakes. So it's like. I was like, you know, I think I could pull it off to create a forest fire and um, and use visual effects to to bridge it and you know to 
combine the elements of a little bit of practical fire, fog, lighting, which are all elements that we use anyways for all special effects movies. Mm-hmm. And, and so it seemed doable and it, and it, and it turned out to be that there was, it was fairly fast and simple. I mean, doing a lot of special effects is hard because you got to, you know, you just have to orchestrate all these elements, you know, but, and then Don knew exactly because we've done a bunch of visual effect things where you have to edit stuff in that, doesn't exist so footage okay yeah this right here is going to be we're going to have to like put over here this has to be animation and and here's a plate shot for this and here this one's gonna and then we're doing like ripomatics and and editing things in like this will be a visual effect so you have to know how to do that how to set up the visual effects when you're shooting it and you have to know how to edit it yeah and then and i've done so many films with nick and others that are on this level uh, you don't have you don't have a VFX post team with you. You don't have a pre visualization. Mm-hmm. You don't have anybody working on shots to then give you as the editor to cut in and see if they time out right. and they work or whatever. So I'm I'm left with the plates. And sometimes Nick and I get really crude, where I'm taking JPEGs off of the internet and I'm putting them onto the screen and animating them around just to yeah, see if little, we have the timing and the length like, of the shot correct. Yeah, like they found hell. We had to go through the whole thing and put because it was like a creature. It was like any any effect had to have a animatic. So Don was like doing little animatics on it. And it was it's pretty funny because like I was watching the rough cut with my kids and, and the animatic came up and they were just cracking up because they thought it was so cool that there was like this cheesy fake animation all of a sudden on the on in, in the movie. You know, not even cheesy. It's just like, oh wow, it's kind of like grabbing a a cutout and and having it just like appear in screen but it works you know yeah i've done the same thing on shark movies where i literally have a jpeg of a shark moving through so i can check how fast is the shark moving and have i given enough frames in the plate for that motion to be natural um you know or you have a storyboard drawn if you have the money a lot of times like if it's a I've lower storyboards that's we, true, yeah. we just don't have time we don't have time to hire you know like storyboards uh it's it's too it, it takes it takes time and money like to unless you're a really good drawer yourself you know which i'm i'm not um i'm i'm okay i can do like stick figure but but i already don't need storyboards unless it's like you know but you can you can after the fact um have storyboards drawn and edited in for like doing pickup days. Like if you need to know exactly what you're going to pick up. And a film like on fire, we also had, I, w- I went through tons and tons of news footage ahead of time, you know, from all over the world um, just to sort of look at what, you know, what real fires look like obviously and how it, how it moves and also just about, you know, uh, what it's like for the first responders and what it's like for the family. And then I spent a lot of time looking through Pond 5 and other stock footage places at real shots of real fires. And then we would start sometimes cutting those in. And then ultimately those would get replaced by the visual effect, you know, because we would have an empty plate of a forest. And then I'd have a stock shot of a forest fire and say, hey, here's here's the empty Mm. plate of the forest we're giving you. Here's a real stock shot of a real fire in a forest that we need you to add to our plate and make it, you know, and make it what it, what it looks like. But what I also loved about this movie too, is it was very challenging from a VFX standpoint. But when Nick sent me the script, the reason I said yes to him 
is because when I read the script, yes, it's about a family in peril going through a horrific disaster, but even Nick and I together have made that movie before. I've done that movie before. That is not what interested me. What interested me is what the script that Nick wrote with Ron, pulling from real life experiences of everyone who has been involved in these other fires all over the world, was that we bounce back and forth between the family and all of their chaos and drama and everything, but also to the 911 call center. And what is it like for the people who are stuck in a desk fielding call after call after call? And obviously, Mm -hmm. if you're calling 911, chances are you're not calling to see how they're doing, you know, or ask about the game, right? So, and especially in this mountain town where this fire is exploding, it's like, they get calls, and sometimes they can figure out where they are and get them help and, and, help other times something catastrophic happens in the background of the call and the phone call cuts off before they even had a chance to figure out where they were and it's like what is that like emotionally um and 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 psychologically for the for the first responders because then oh by the way you can't get too drawn drawn into that phone call that just ended because already you look up and your light is going off and the phone is ringing again for the next person who's trapped in the fire that needs your help so to me, telling the story that way is what also made me say yes, because I hadn't done that before. We're a little over time. I do want to do one more for both of you. So you've given a lot of great advice already. We've talked a lot about speed uh, in mm-hmm. both parts of the industry. For novice filmmakers or novice editors trying to break in today, is there any way in which to prepare for that? Because they're not going to, I don't think they're going to be prepared for that. So how can they try to? <sighs> Uh, I think for me, um, uh, there are very few places you can go to really truly know how to tell a story. Like it's one thing you can go to school and you can learn all the programs and you can learn what buttons to hit on the keyboard, but it's really hard to be taught how to tell a story and how to tell it properly. And I, I would say to editors coming up, get your hands on whatever you can and just cut, just cut as much as you can you know, shoot footage yourself, even if it's not great footage, you know, work with friends, like just the more you edit, the more you start to understand the patterns and the flows and how to tell stories. And, and so I think for me, the easiest advice is like, you have to do it. There, there isn't anything you can like prepare for fully or truly know what to do until you're actually doing it. Once you actually do it, then you can start to get faster each time and learn tips and tricks. But, but for me, and especially with how my mind works, it's nothing that I could pick up from somebody telling me what to do. I have to do it myself. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it doesn't matter what it is initially cut home, home movies, you know, cut, you know, there's plenty of places online where you can get footage of things that you can just play around with and edit with You know, there's literally packs of footage nowadays, that you can get. Nowadays, every iPhone. Yeah. Shoot some I mean, stuff like, and cut it. Like my son, his his class at school, they that's all they use is iPhones and they do brilliant stuff. I, it's like it's really fun what they're doing. So there's really not much of an excuse to not be able to like back in the day when it was film, it cost millions to you know, it always you need a lot of money. Now it's like you have it at your fingertips. It's you know, become accessible to everybody. Um, and, and so there's almost no excuse to not be able to go out and practice, you know, just by doing stuff. You can either do ripomatic films, you can edit trailers, you know, take a film you like and make a trailer, uh, uh, 
stuff like that, you know, write a script, shoot a little short film, a lot of short film stuff. That, that's what I would say. But, um, you know, YouTube helps a lot for the editing technique. Like you don't even need a class. You just need to like watch all the YouTube videos and that'll, and then practice. I, I'm the same way, Don. I can't, I do it by learning. I hands on, I have hands to on. learn. Um, but I think there's another thing like film school is great. It gives you the time to like think about, you know, take the time to explore what you're doing and you can learn from a mentor or take the time and, and follow a structured path, but it's not the only path. I think that, I think that actually, you know, going and becoming, if you're, becoming a you know working at a company working on production seeing how things move behind the scenes that's super valuable um and a lot of people you know like just going and getting a job as a pa when you're first starting out or an assistant editor or that hands-on experience of being on set or even producing you know become a office pa and then you move yourself up to the next position the next position um there's something to be said about that because I think that's maybe the fastest way to learn. You're just not learning. You're not, you're, but you need to remember to take the time to explore and do your own projects. Cause that's really where you learn to tell the story, everything else you can learn somewhere else, but learning to tell the story, you have to tell a story. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's a digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.